How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you thinking this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life! I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! I'm sorry, Ben. I'm afraid I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I guess everyone's a title one good scare. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the three guys telling you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them. So that the next time you're caught up in a nerdy movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horde. I'm another one of your hosts, film historian Justin Bishop. And I'm writer-comedian Mr. Todd A. Davis. You may think co-hosting Cinema Shock is all drudgery, unwrapping behind-the-scenes stories and checking our facts against multiple sources, but I love it. And we'll think you'll love our sixth episode of our examination at the life and career of John Waters and his collaborations with Divine in our series titled divine filth so that was a mouthful there todd (laughs) (laughs) yeah thanks (laughs) oh wow so here we are fellas we're here at the end of the series the end of our john Mm -hmm. well sort of we'll we'll get to that later but uh for this whole series (laughs) you know if you've been following us along uh on this journey what is this episode what did you say episode six this is the six of our john water series so if you've been Mm -hmm. following along for the previous five episodes then you you know that we've been kind of teasing the idea that John Waters was eventually going to go more mainstream. Uh, Of course, if you're familiar with John Waters' work prior to listening to this podcast, you probably already knew that. But the movie we're talking about today, it is by far John Waters' most well-known and most mainstream movie. See, when you start watching John Waters' movies from the beginning, like we did, it's, it's kind of Let's say that you're watching them from the beginning. You start with Multiple Maniacs and Pink Flamingos, and you have no knowledge of anything John Waters is ever going to do. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to imagine that this guy, the guy who made Multiple Maniacs and Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble, was ever going to go mainstream. I mean, <laughs> if we didn't know it ahead of time, it would be inconceivable to think that the guy who made who who filmed Divine eating shit on an actual street corner in in Baltimore would ever approach the kind of filmmaking that would draw in mass audiences. And yet here we are. Yep. Let alone would Divine play a uh, a suburban housewife. But yet, when you read interviews with John Waters, even those written in the 70s and the early 80s, when he was still wearing the crown of the Prince of Puke, uh, it's easy to see that he was always, he always kind of had a game plan. You know, uh, I, I've said it multiple times on the show that he he was a businessman. Uh, he knew that even after Pink Flamingos, that the crassness of those earlier films was not sustainable. But, you know, as a businessman, John Waters wanted to be successful. He, he knew what it took to be successful. He, John Waters wanted to make money is what it is. John Waters, this is a career and he wanted to make money. Uh, and he's always been upfront about that. I mean, he, he was never going to compromise who he was as an artist to do so, but that was always his end game is that he wanted to wear silk shirts. He didn't want to shop in the thrift stores of Baltimore anymore. And he's also smart enough as a businessman 
to know that he was going to have to involve, evolve in order to reach the kind of success that he craved. He knew that in order to thrive, he was going to have to make the kind of movie that a lot of people would want to see. He would later say, I never just wanted to shock. I always wanted to make people laugh first. And how I got my original laughs was by shock. I didn't want to make Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS. I like that movie, but for me, humor is first and shock is second. I don't want to be predictable, and if I kept doing the same thing, it wouldn't have worked anymore. So he took a step in this new direction with polyester. And while polyester was a very big move forward in that regard, it still didn't quite reach the levels of mainstream success that he was aiming for. But then in 1988, a full seven years after Polyester's release, Waters would finally reach that level of success with a movie that exceeded all expectations, even his own, a film that thrust Waters into the national spotlight and made him not just a cult director, but a name brand director. And that film, of course, is Hairspray. Baltimore, 1962. The heyday of hairdos and hair don'ts. We shall overcome someday. Not with that hair, you won't. Heart throbs and hefty girls. Hot dates and hit talkers. No matter what you've heard, we are going to teach the white children how to do the bird. Beatniks and hair hoppers and one magic potion that holds it all together. They put me in special ed just because of my hair. The times, they're a changing. Something's blowing in the wind. White trash, plain and simple. Fetch me my diet pills, would you, hon? Oh, mother, you're so 50. Starring Sonny Bono, Ruth Brown, Divine, Michael St. Gerard, Debbie Harry, Ricky Lake, Jerry Stiller, and Sean Thompson. The new comedy from John Waters. It's way beyond grease. Hairspray. Spoilers, mama told me not to use it. Spoilers, well, if I don't, I'm gonna lose it. Spoilers, gimme, gimme control. Spoilers, got stand-up soul. Well, now we're gonna have to pay for the rights for that. <laughs> that. I don't know how we won't get pig since it sounded exactly the same. Yeah, listen, if anything... I am a performance chameleon. I, I go in, I take the material and I embody it. And I, and that's what I bring. That's what I bring to the show. None of those words are things I would have used to describe what you just did. <laughs> so after polyester waters figured he finally had the clout to get a sequel to pink flamingos made. Uh, he wrote a script called flamingos forever and spent several years trying to get that project off the ground. And while this project may have felt like a step backwards in terms of mainstream success, I think Waters was trying to use the cloud afforded to him by Polyester's modest success to get a movie greenlit that he may not have been able to, to get greenlit otherwise. Uh, we covered Flamingos Forever briefly at the end of our Pink Flamingos episode, but in reading the script, it is clear that this was going to be a much bigger and much pricier film than anything Waters had done before. And while developing it, Waters budgeted that film at about $600,000, which is twice the budget of polyester, which is an incredibly ambitious goal for a movie that ends with Divine flying away on a giant turd like it's Aladdin's magic carpet. <laughs> <laughs> Waters spent years 
trying to make Flamingos Forever happen. And even New Line, who had met great success in distributing Pink Flamingos, they turned him down, as did a lot of other studios. And on top of that, Divine was reluctant to return to the role that had made him a star, wanting to break away from those types of shock value roles and segue into a more legitimate career as a character actor. Then in 1984, as we discussed on our last episode, Edith Massey passed away, and that was, pardon the expression, the final nail in the coffin for Flamingos Forever. So by the time Waters conceded that that film was just never going to happen, it was 1985. He had gone four years without stepping behind a camera on a new film, and he knew that if he wanted to continue to make movies professionally, he was going to have to get another project moving and get it moving fast. So that brought him back to an old script idea that he had had back in the late 70s that was inspired by his memories of his teenage years living in Baltimore watching a TV program called The Buddy Dean Show. Now, for those that don't know, the Buddy Dean show was produced locally in Baltimore. It was sort of like a Dick Clark's American Bandstand. It was like a regional version of that. The format of the show was kind of a teenage dance party where the committee members, who were like the Mouseketeers from Baltimore, were billed as the nicest kids in town. They danced to popular music from around that time. It aired from 1957 till 1964. It was the top-rated local show in Baltimore, and for several years, the highest-rated local TV show in the country. And I cannot imagine a two-hour dance show entertaining me, but all right. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I used to watch Spring Break on, on MTV, but it probably had a little more to do with there being a lot of very scantily clad women on it. Yeah, that was not this show. That's, that's, yeah, fair. that's fair. <laughs> although, although it does sound like, you know, I would read about it a little bit, and it seems like, you know, record labels would actually bring music to this show to, like, play yeah. and make up dances for it so that it would have to be used to the show, and that would be what hooks the kids in, that they got to go buy that music now so they can do the dance at home or learn that dance or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. John Waters was a huge fan of this show. Yeah, yeah. John Waters loved it. And in his book, Crackpot, Waters says, quote, you learn how to be a teenager from the show. Every day after school, kids would run home, tune in and dance with the bedpost or refrigerator door as they watched. If you couldn't do the Buddy Dean jitterbug, you were a social outcast. And because a new dance was introduced practically every week, you had to watch every day to keep up. It was maddening. The mashed potato, the stroll, the pony, the waddle, the locomotion, the bug, the hand jive, the new continental, and most importantly, the Madison, a complicated line dance that started here and later swept the country. Yeah, he says he watched that show every single day and it was on twice a lot of times. He actually was on the show too. Like he he and Mary Vivian Pierce uh, went on the show and he said they would get thrown off. And I have seen him tell this story a few times and he says a different thing each time. So this is kind of weird, but my favorite one, he said, was they got thrown off for doing the booty green, uh, <laughs> which was the one dance you couldn't do on the show. Uh, <laughs> the booty anyway. I want to know <laughs> what it is. Green. I got to look it up now. I got to know what was so bad about it. <laughs> I know. So, okay. So fellas, we need to do a, a video, either Instagram or TikTok of the three of us doing the booty green. The booty green. That's probably not going to Yeah. Happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, he, he, there was another girl there, uh, Mary Lou Rains, and uh, they he he even talks about winning a twist contest with her. So that's that's how big of a fan John Waters yeah. was. Of he was a fanboy for the show. Uh, unfortunately, the Buddy Dean show didn't keep up with the times, which ended up spelling its doom. Uh, a lot of the plot elements in Hairspray actually came directly from the real-life story of this show. Uh, see, Buddy Dean was a show that was exclusively cast with white kids. 
once a month, they held what they uh, they called their uh, quote their special guest day is what they called it, uh, where the dancers were exclusively black kids. Uh, the black kids called it Black Monday, uh, but officially it was called this special guest day. Uh, although there was never a black committee, the committee were those are the kids that we see in the movie that are like the regular dancers. There were never any black kids on that. Uh, so the NAACP targeted the show for protests, and ironically, it was. Uh, it was the Buddy Dean show that actually introduced black music and, and black artists to a lot of the white teenagers in Baltimore, including John Waters. Remember, I, I don't know if you guys remember this from our very first episode, I think, of this show, that it was him and him and Mink Stoll. Was it was it him? and No, him and or him and Mary Vivian Pierce. They like bonded over their mutual love of of black music and black artists, uh, you know, and they yeah. and they and he learned to love this kind of music by watching the Buddy Dean show. Uh, you know, and so you had all these white kids who were listening to to black music and they were even learning to dance from their black friends and listening to black radio stations, but they weren't letting black people on the show. <laughs> like it's, 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 it's pretty fucked up, you know, yeah. uh, Buddy Dean himself, Buddy Dean being a real person, he was the, the host of the show. Buddy Dean tried to help matters by offering uh, to have three or four days a week with an all black dance group. Uh, but that wasn't enough. The protesters, understandably, wanted a sh the show integrated. They wanted white and black kids dancing side by side. Otherwise, it's it's not it's not much of a gesture if you're still separating them and just giving them more airtime. You know, you're still segregating uh, people. And we see all of this in Water Script for Hairspray. Uh, the Corny Collins show is a very obviously a stand-in for the Buddy Dean show. But there's one big difference in Water Story and the story of the real TV show. See, at the end of Hairspray. The Corny Collins show becomes fully integrated. That didn't happen with the Buddy Dean show. Womp womp. See, just like we see in the movie, the Buddy Dean show was picketed by integrationists, but the TV station that uh, that produced the show wouldn't allow the show to be integrated, claiming that Baltimore, uh, quote, wasn't ready for that. At the end of Hairspray, Tracy and Seaweed dance their way onto the air, officially integrating the show. It's a, it's a happy ending, you know? It's how many people wish things had gone, but unfortunately, history is a little bit messier. On August 12th, 1963, which was during one of the show's uh, monthly uh, special guest days, you know, a group of black and white kids staged a similar sneak attack on the show, uh, and it worked for a bit. Uh, this was a live TV show, right? These are This is not taped ahead of time. It's aired live. So the show had to go on, although the TV station did do their best to, to hide what was going on. Uh, if there was like a white guy and a black girl dancing together, the screen would dissolve into little squiggles and squares as a kind of crude form of censorship so they were doing and they would even they would lower the lights and stuff but you could still you know they were doing everything they could to keep people at home from seeing that there were white people and black people dancing together on the on tv uh can't have that no it's absurd right uh so in the wake of this surprise integration came bomb threats arson threats uh people were called like the racist people around Baltimore were calling in threats to the TV station. Sometimes this happened so close to airtime that the show had to shoot in the parking lot. They had to actually, they still had to shoot the show because it, you know, it's a, da a daily show. It came on like six days a week, uh, but they just had to move everything into the parking lot because there was a bomb threat to the building. I'm glad to know we're officially living in Todd's Star Trek future where these kinds of things don't happen. Anymore. Yeah. Nothing yeah. like this. Yeah. yeah right. Ah, uh, racism. <laughs> The bygone era. <laughs> so while the character of Velma Von Tussle in the movie makes a really great villain as a segregationist TV station manager, uh, the real station manager was a guy named Herb Cahan. Is that how you say that? Herb Cahan, who was a 
passionate integrationist. He, he, he wanted the show to be integrated. Shortly after taking over as station manager in 1962, uh, Cahan decided that the Buddy Dean show would either fully integrate or it would go off the air. He's like, this is the only way that this is going to go. But after witnessing the hysteria following the day of that surprise integration, he came to believe that although the kids probably wouldn't mind, their parents would not tolerate integrated dancing on TV. Uh, he, he told a local civil rights activist, he said, I can't resolve the problem with the parents. I have to get rid of the show. Because again, the, and the TV station owners, they were saying Baltimore wasn't ready for it, but he's the manager and he's trying to get it to happen. And he just doesn't think that it's going to be accepted. And so on January 4th, 1964, which is nearly five months after the first and only day that white and black kids danced together on the show, the Buddy Dean show aired its last episode. Waters, of course, he witnessed all of this. He's growing up during all this time. He's watching this happen on TV. So when he began writing a story about teenagers in Baltimore set in the early 1960s, he wanted to work the integration storyline into the film. Uh, and he later, he, he would say in interviews about it, he said that all that stuff did happen. To ignore that would be untruthful about that period. So he's like, if I'm going to write a, sh a story about essentially the Buddy Dean show, I'm going to do it warts and all. So using the real story of the Buddy Dean show, Waters set about writing the script for an upbeat teen comedy that was a far cry from anything he'd written before. There were, you know, no close-ups of wart-covered penises. Uh, there was no, no nudity of any kind on this movie. Nobody eating shit. Uh, there were no shoe fetishes or dead animals or blood or puke or drugs or like there was not none of the things that John Waters had become known for up to this point. Maybe because there's a larger message here. I don't know. I was just thinking about this earlier. It's just like, wow, you really couldn't uh, talk much about racism if uh, Divine was also popping turds in the background. Right. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you got to get your message across. <laughs> popping pop turds. Well, even, even in this, you know, the role that had been written for Divine. To, to your point, Gary, that, that role that was written specifically for Divine in the film was very subdued. In this movie, Divine would portray a moral, hardworking housewife and dedicated mother, uh, a kind of a natural progression from the somewhat more grounded role that she had played in polyester. Yeah, I, I think uh, Divine had told John Waters, he said, nobody's going to call me a drag queen after this role. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of the first scenes that you see Divine in, it's like her hair's up in rollers and stuff. She's like, she's looking rough. You know, she looks better yeah. later in the movie when she gets her little makeover. But yeah, she's looking kind of rough there at the beginning. <laughs> the the whole thing, with like, one thing you can take away from this for sure, and like in the DVD commentary, John Waters is mostly just reminiscing the whole time. It's almost just like too much. Just like It's just cool to hear him talk about it just all the things that are accurate right. from this movie with like what was really happening at the time like basically just he talked about big hair like baltimore prided itself on its big oh, hair yeah. and like uh, there's a there's a whole uh, chapter in shock value that's just, it's not about like his movies or anything it's just about baltimore but it's called uh, Baltimore, the hairdo capital of the world is the name of the chapter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He talked about like hair hoppers. That was a real thing. Mm -hmm. yep. And yeah, it's even it's true to date in like some areas, but there will be like mother, mother, daughter hairdos that they would do together. And uh, you, your status could be uh, claimed by like how big you could get your hair. Or yeah. <laughs> so, he said he, he remembers like the first day. I, I can't remember if it was Pat Moran or 
Mink Solar. So one of them like came on the set for the first time. He said they were just like, this is like the fucking Twilight Zone here. Like, <laughs> this, is, this is exactly like it used to be. Well, despite the more mainstream appeal of the script, raising money was still kind of difficult. Uh, Waters approached New Line, despite the fact that they had passed on Flamingos forever. And they read the script, but once again, refused to finance it. You see, New Line, they were growing and they had just had a huge hit with a little movie called A Nightmare on Elm Street. And with the runaway success of that film, they'd established themselves as a kind of the big new thing in town. You know, they'd gone Hollywood, literally, actually. They had moved their offices from New York to the West Coast. They were actually in Hollywood now. And they didn't seem to have time for another little underground John Waters movie. But refusing to give up on the film, Waters developed a pitch for the movie. And he started actually trying to sell it to other studios. This is really the first time he's had to do this. Uh, so he's having to pitch it to other studios. Uh, but he wasn't having a whole lot of luck until he came in contact with a guy named Stanley Buckthall otherwise known as Bucky. Hi, everybody. My name is Bucky Buckfall. <laughs> it, does, it does seem like he should talk like that. But, yeah, uh, yeah. But Bucky, I'm uh, Bucky Buckfall. <laughs> I'm going to make your movie. <laughs> uh, I Bucky, can toss a couple of bucks from Bucky over your... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's like a like a Chuck E. Cheese character. <laughs> in my head. It's not, I'm sorry, I just saw that uh, name. But I can't. What? Uh, what? Yeah. What? I'm pick, what animal is he as a Chuck E. Cheese character? I'm picturing a beaver, personally. No, no, he's definitely a beaver. <laughs> <laughs> he's got the buck teeth. I mean, I guess one of the buckies. Hold on, I want to toss a couple of bucks your way. I guess I'm thinking of buckies. Picture made. <laughs> Well, Bucky, uh, Bucky was not a movie guy. He wasn't like a big movie financer or producer. He was a Wall Street guy who wanted to get into the movie business. You know, he wanted to start producing movies, just not from an artistic point of view, but to make money. Because again, he's a Wall Street guy. That's kind of what they want is to make money. So he paid John for an option on the script and uh, was confident that he could raise the $2 million budget that Waters was looking for by working with some of his Wall Street pals who also wanted to get into the movie biz. You know, he was like, I'm going to talk to my friends. We'll raise this $2 million. If I can't get enough people to contribute, I'll pay for it out of my own pocket. Is what Bucky Believe said. me, John, I got a bunch of buds and I think we can make a blockbuster with some big booty broads. <laughs> <laughs> the next Cinema Shock t-shirt is going to be this character. I, we're going to need somebody. We're going to need, going to need this. Just trust Buck. We can't. <laughs> Oh man! So what our audience doesn't know is that Gary is just getting over having COVID, and I am I am guessing that you've taken like a lot of cough syrup today, or right? <laughs> so, oh my god! Oh uh, man! Some alcohol. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> it's a good mixture: cough syrup and alcohol. You know? Yeah. Jesus. Well, Christ. we call it lean in my part of. <laughs> So I I guess Bucky wasn't able to talk any of his stonk bros into financing the movie with him. So he eventually decided that he would just fully fund it himself. He's like, he called John. He's like, I'm just going to pay for it. I'm going to pay the $2 million. I'm going to, I'm going to fund this movie for you. And he wired the first $10,000 and pre-production officially began. They started working on the movie, but then there's a plot twist here, fellas, about, about 10 days into pre-production waters got word that Bucky had sold his option on the film and guess who he sold it to? New Line Cinema, who had just turned it down. <laughs> All of a sudden, Waters was back in business with New Line. 
Uh, and, and they were like really excited about it. You know, like, like Bob Shea called him is all excited about working with us. Like, well, why didn't you just sign on to do the movie when we talked to you like a month ago, dude, <laughs> you know, but, uh, so they're, they're back. Bucky would still remain on as an executive producer and he would be paid a fee of $125,000, which of course would have to come from that $2 million budget. Uh, so Bucky made out pretty good because he sold his option to new line and then got a salary of 125 grand as an executive producer. So it worked. Uh, whatever he was sorry, trying to sorry, do. Sorry, John, I got a bounce above her off of you. New line came back through. <laughs> they tossed a couple of books my way, so I shared my spot. But I'm going to be an executive producer. We'll make billions. Billions, <laughs> I tell you. Listen, if there's one thing Bucky knows, it's the BBD, the bigger, better deal. Right, Bucky? <laughs> BBDs and BBWs, that's Bucky's game, let me tell you. <laughs> Oh, man. Jesus Christ. All right. So one of the reasons that Waters wanted $2 million for the film, because that's a big jump from the $300,000 that he had had on polyester, $2 million. But one of the reasons that he wanted that much for it is because he knew that the music from the era, which the early 60s, would be integral to the story connecting with people, you know? Mm. Uh, So the music budget was originally set at about $150,000, but New Line agreed to increase that to closer to $450,000 so that they could get the rights to real songs from that time period. Uh, You know, rather than having original songs written for the film, like songs that sounded like they were from the early 60s, but weren't, they wanted, you know, music that people recognized. And in the end, there's only one original song in the film, and that's the theme song that plays over the opening credits, which was co-written and performed by Rachel Sweet, but everything else is, you know, songs that were authentic to the time period that the, the Buddy Dean show was on. And another big plus for having a much bigger budget this time was that for the first time on a John Waters film, they were going to do things legit and bring the unions in. Remember, he's been dodging unions this whole time, really out of fear more than anything. Yeah. Uh, now that he's, he's not anti-union, he's actually pro-union if you listen to him talk about it in interviews, but uh, he was just scared to have unions because he knew it would make his movies cost more. But this time his movie's going to cost more anyway, so they can bring the unions in. And that means instead of a bunch of uh, friends and non-professionals filling out roles in the film, Waters now had experienced actors and members of the Screen Actors Guild in his cast. So there'd be no like help wanted ad posted in the Baltimore Sun for Hairspray. <laughs> yeah, like they had done in all their previous films. Uh, this time... No, no no buses picking up, like, random homeless people. Yeah, yeah, no buses and, and, and taking them 40 minutes away so that they couldn't escape. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, no, no more of that, yeah. Uh, this time, when Pat Moran began casting the film, she did it the old-fashioned Hollywood way. She went through agents and she held auditions, and that's how she got her cast on this. So Pat Moran is still the the casting director on this as she is on all of Waters films. Uh, I think this, this might be the first one. Maybe she was on polyester. I can't remember where she's credited as casting director before on all the more underground stuff. It was more just like that just fell under her umbrella of things to do, but she, she did uh, eventually get an official title as a casting director, which is what she's done ever since. Of course, the one person that they did not need to audition for the film was divine since he had already uh, been given the role of Edna Turnblad because that role had been written for him. There had actually been some thoughts to cast divine as both Edna and Tracy, but New Line thought it might be a little weird having 42-year-old Divine kissing a 16-year-old boy on screen. <laughs> so besides, Waters was never really sold on that idea anyway. I think it was just one of those things where they were probably talking like, hey, wouldn't it be funny if you did both of these roles? Because John Waters, ever since uh, Female Trouble, has been trying to make movies where Divine plays multiple roles, you know? Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. He's trying to do that. So it, it kind of feels like something where it's like, yeah, wouldn't it be funny if you played Tracy and Edna? But I don't think they ever really considered it. Because remember, when he was talking about this back in like 1977, when he was doing Desperate Living, he was talking about making this movie with a 15-year-old in the lead role, right? So he mm. always clearly had the idea that he was going to cast an actual teenager in the lead. Right. And it was Divine's manager, Bernard Jay, who suggested that Divine also play the role of Arvin Hodgepile, who's the racist TV station owner, uh, because he knew that if Divine played that part, it would be another male role on the actor's CV, which would help him get similar roles in the future. Because remember, they're trying to build Divine as like this character actor, not, not a drag performer, not a drag queen, but a character actor. So more male roles, the better, right? So yeah. he gets cast as Arvin Hodgepile as well. For the role of Edna's husband, Tracy's father, Waters cast a comedy legend in Mr. Jerry Stiller. Yeah, for anybody who doesn't know who Jerry Stiller is, uh, he was known for his 206 episodes of King of Queens and 27 episodes of Seinfeld. Uh, but he also appeared in many of his son's films, including Hot Pursuit, Heavyweights, Zoolander, and The Heartbreak Kid, among others. Uh, Jerry was born on June 8th, 1927 in Brooklyn, New York. After having served in the U.S. Army during World War II, he earned his bachelor's degree in speech and drama for, from Syracuse University in 1950. And one day, Jerry was in an agent's office when he overheard a young woman named Anne Mara expressing her frustrations about a particular casting agent. So Jerry took her out for coffee which was all he could afford at the time. And they were married for over 60 years. And during their marriage, the New York Times considered the comedy duo of Stiller and Mara a national phenomenon. They appeared on the John Winters specials, Steve Allen Comedy Hour, and the Ed Sullivan Show, just to name a few. They even had their own TV sitcom, uh, The Stiller and Mara Show, that was in 1986. Uh, Jerry and Ann had two children, Amy and Ben, in oh, Ben Stiller. Yeah, there it is. That's who this kid is. <laughs> In 2001, Jerry wrote a book, Married to Laughter, a love story featuring Anne Mara. But after suffering multiple strokes, Anne Mara Stiller died on May 23rd, 2015 at their home in Manhattan at the age of 85. And just five years later, Gerald Isaac Stiller died on May 11th, 2020 at the age of 92 from natural causes. And just go, going back through, like you can just pull up Jerry Stiller, greatest moments, Kings of Queens, Jerry Stiller, greatest moments, Seinfeld, and you will just laugh your ass off. He's he so funny. So, like so fucking uh, funny. His, his, like, I, I, I never really watched King of Queens, but like him as George Costanza's dad on Seinfeld is one mm -hmm. of the greatest, like guest starring roles on a sitcom of all time. Like it is oh, yeah. every time he pops up, he is so funny. Like, yeah. And just to the, the energy to the rafters. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> and only appear it. on 27 episodes out of like however many hundred episodes. The fact that he is a part of so many like memorable, like Seinfeld moments, you know, Festivus mm -hmm. and all that stuff. Like that's all. The man's very, ear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it's just classic just like every time he every time he appeared on that show it was like a classic episode of seinfeld yeah yeah, yeah he's, he's really great and i i love him here as well i love him in this movie oh uh, yeah so good and just totally fits that period and what his character you know running the joke shop mm -hmm. that is jerry stiller yeah like you absolutely see him doing yeah, that it's really great so <laughs> 
Uh, as for the film's villains, Waters had originally envisioned the roles of Velma and Amber Von Tussle with Joey Heatherton and Pia Zadora in the roles. Do you guys know who Pia Zadora is? Mm, she, no, not really. Got, look her up. I'm not going to go into a big career thing on her, uh, but but look her up. She was in Santa. Her, her, her first acting role was in Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, which if you're a fan of Mystery Science Theater 3000, you have probably seen at some point. But uh, <laughs> then she transitioned into a musical career, and it's very strange. But anyway, they they both passed. Heatherton passed, uh, although she did she did pop up in Cry Baby later on. Crybaby is Waters' movie after this. Uh, mm-hmm. And Zadora, who was, she was in the middle of like this transition from an acting career to a musical career. She was on tour promoting that musical career. Uh, so she couldn't do it because of that, but she did uh, manage to squeeze in a cameo in between tour stops. So she could, she didn't have time to do a whole role, but she told Waters, hey, I can stop in Baltimore in between this city and this city. If you can squeeze me into a cameo, I'll do it. So she pops up here as the beatnik chick. Uh, in, a, in a very memorable scene in the film. And then in that same scene, the beatnik cat, which that's why they're credited, the, the guy, but it's uh, Rick Ocasek, frontman of the cars, being very weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is a very Rick Ocasek uh, role. Uh, he's, a, which, he's a phenomenal musician, if you're not familiar with the cars. The cars' first album is one of the greatest debut albums of all time. I mean, it is incredible, just great stuff. But uh, nice. that's him there as the beatnik painting, you know, in the background. Just being really strange. Uh, then Waters offered the roles of the Van Tussle uh, ladies after Heatherton and, and Z- uh, Zadora turned it down. He offered it to several other actresses, among them uh, Mamie Van Doren and Lisa Marie Presley. Uh, wow. But many of them just turned the roles down. And eventually an actress named Colleen Fitzpatrick was cast as Amber. Now Fitzpatrick, she was not very well known as an actress at this time. She was a professional dancer who... After after Hairspray, she had a few other small film roles, but she's primarily known for her music career, where she performed under the stage name Vitamin C. Her self-titled debut album reached platinum level, primarily thanks to the hit single Graduation, uh, parentheses, Friends Forever, which if you went to high school anytime between like 1998 and 2005 or so, you definitely heard played during a graduation ceremony. Uh, it is the cheesiest fucking song, uh, but it made her a lot of money, I, I would assume. <laughs> <laughs> the whole album was cheesy, but I had it in high school. Yeah. I, I don't know. I thought she was hot, but she, the, she uh, was. <laughs> she had put a smile on your face, make the world a better place. Yeah. And I, I think that one was actually before graduation, if I remember. That was like, yeah, the I think first that was the first single. single. But then graduation just became this thing that got played at graduations. Uh, and uh, it became like synonymous with graduations for a, a period of time in the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, so oh, yeah. that was, it was it was like this at good riddance time of your life by yeah, Green Day, right. like everywhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, Gary, prior to this, or or either of you guys, I guess I don't know why I directed this directly at Gary, but uh, did either of you guys have a clue that vitamin C was in hairspray? Had no idea. No, no. <laughs> that's just the weirdest bit of trivia to me. I I've known that bit of trivia for years, but I just remember the first time I found out, I was like, wait, the Friends Forever girl? That's her. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I remember hearing like back in the day that she was like an actress at one point or yeah. something, but, but yeah, I had no idea she was in Hairspray. Yeah. And, and Colleen Fitzpatrick, she would later work as the VP of music for Nickelodeon and then as a music executive for Netflix. So she stayed like in the music industry or in, in the music and entertainment industry, I guess you could say, uh, yeah. which she still does. As far as I know, to this day, she might even still work for Netflix. I'm not sure. Yeah. Pretty successful lady. Yeah. So good. For yeah. Her. She, she like, you know, for someone who was a 
not a one-hit wonder, but like a two-hit wonder, you know, a lot of times they just drop off the face of the map. But for her to transition that into like some other executive roles in in the business is is pretty impressive, you know. Yeah. Uh, then the role of the mother, uh, Velma Von Tussle, that would end up being played by Debbie Harry, lead singer of Blondie, of course, who you may recall yeah. contributed some songs to Polyester. Uh, according to Harry, Waters wanted Harry uh, to perform music for Hairspray, but just like on Polyester, her record label wouldn't let her do it. She had a very like difficult contract with her record label, like very restrictive. They did not let her work on anyone else's songs. So that didn't happen, but she did get to play the role, you know. Then for the smaller role of Franklin Von Tussle, uh, which is the father, uh, Waters cast none other than Sonny Bono. Uh, Bono's casting was a bit of a surprise to some fans uh, since Bono was a well-known conservative Republican who was looking to run for office and, as we know, eventually did. Uh, His political beliefs seemed to kind of run contrary to Waters' own, but he fit the part well. He had acting experience and was, of course, a a well-known name. Yeah, I I think Bono started in, like, 88, I think, was his first year as uh, mayor of Palm Springs. I don't know. Like, it, it, he he says they never really talked about politics. And he just saw, always puts over Sonny Bono in every interview I saw just about how, how he plays a racist. Who would do that right. in the middle of their <laughs> political career? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and said that that was actually Debbie Harry's biggest draw, too. Debbie Harry had something about really wanting to work with Sonny Bono. And really? So, yeah. And so that, like, drew her to the role. And... Uh, Water City later met Cher at one point and Cher even came up to him and thanked him for being so good to Sonny and like talking so nicely about him all the time, even after huh. everybody would try to bury him for being a Republican or right. whatever reason that she always thought that was really cool of John Waters. Yeah. I mean, that's, that seems to be just the kind of guy that Waters is like, he can put certain political, you know, disagreements behind uh, aside. And still like get along with people, which is which is great. Yeah. You know, I mean, granted, I mean, there are certain we're not going to get into it, but obviously there are certain beliefs that are hard to brush under the rug. <laughs> but <laughs> but in the case of like uh, John Waters, I mean, he he talks about that a lot. You know, who even with uh, Tab Hunter, remember Tab Hunter yeah. was a conservative, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and you know they, they would kind of joke about it. Uh, Waters, well, it's interesting to think about it. Maybe maybe it's changed a little since then. But to think about those guys also, or you're in a movie with a drag queen and. Uh, Right. All of this stuff, you know, so it's just interesting. I don't well, the world, it seemed to be so much nicer then. I yeah, people people getting along with each other, weird. Uh, I mean, Waters, Waters did say that, you know, he, Sonny Bono did kind of question, like he had seen John Waters' other movies before, so he kind of questioned, like, what is it, what movie are we actually making? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Waters would later say, uh, here's a quote from Waters, he says, he was great. He kept saying that he thought I was going to trick him. As soon as he'd leave the room, 30 people were going to run in and eat dog shit. He kept saying, is there some scene you haven't told me about that's in this movie? Like he, he just couldn't believe that like the movie was this kind of, you know, nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just, just pleasant. You know, he didn't understand how waters was going from one extreme to another really. And Mm -hmm. and kept thinking of waters was trying to, like he was going to pull the rug out from under him at some point. So in the role of Motormouth Maybell Stubbs, Waters cast Ruth Brown. I know we've got another, there's a lot of singers in this movie, uh, which you have that pop up in a few Waters movies after this. But for uh, Motormouth Maybell, he cast Ruth Brown, who was a singer-songwriter who was sometimes referred to as the queen of R&B. She had had several hit songs for Atlanta record, Atlantic Records in the 1950s. She was actually known as like, you know how New Line is like the house that Freddie built? 
Atlantic Records was kind of known as the house that Ruth Brown built. Like she she had oh, some wow. of their first like big singles. Yeah. So in the in the 70s, she had started doing a little bit of acting, you know, appearing in TV series. Like she was in The Jeffersons, checking in. Like, you know, she was in a lot of TV shows. But so th- this kind of like felt like a natural progression, you know, singer to actor to, you know, be in a movie that where where music is such an integral part of the film. So it, it felt natural for her to be in this. And Waters had based the character of Motormouth Maybell on a real DJ from that era, a guy named Paul Johnson, who was known professionally as Fat Daddy and hosted the monthly uh, you know, the special guest day on the Buddy Dean show. He was the host, so he was essentially what Motormouth Maybell is here. So with all of these big roles cast, they still had one major part to fill, which was the film's lead character, Tracy Turnblad. And after many, many auditions, they finally found a young woman named Ricky Lake, a local singer and dancer who hadn't done a lot of acting at this time. And and I remember seeing interviews with her where she said there was an ad for a dancing fat girl. That's what she said, which <laughs> I just cannot imagine. You would just put out an ad that says we need it. I mean, I've always girl. thought about that because it's like when you're doing an audition or a casting call for a role that requires someone of a certain size or whatever, like you have to kind of put that in the description. Like if you're casting, if you write the movie Precious and you're casting for the role of Precious, you can't just have anyone show up for that audition because they don't fit <laughs> yeah. the role, you know? <laughs> Just other little sweet tidbits about her is apparently like her and Jerry Stiller bonded a, a lot on this. Film. Yeah. And he became like her mentor in entertainment oh. and stuff. And like uh, they had like a long relationship where he kind of looked out for her. But yeah, this was like her first big thing ever. And she she talks yeah. about she didn't even have like like Define was the only person with a private trailer or, or dressing or what they what they call it a honey wagon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, but so she was like changing actually on location and stuff like that. She didn't have anything. She didn't know what to expect. But I, I don't know. It's just interesting. This is like a whole new experience for her. Well, that's the thing. You know, even though this is a two million dollar movie, two million dollars even in 1988 is still that's that's still a lo- this is still a low budget movie. It might mm. be higher than some of John Waters' other stuff, but this is still a low budget movie. And they're still having to like squeeze every dollar they can. Uh, I guess we should say this is not in my notes, but for people who are not our age, like maybe some of our younger listeners, if you don't know who Ricky Lake is outside of this, I mean she's in some other acting roles, of course. Uh, after this, I mean she pops up in a few other John Waters movies. She's in Serial Mom. She's in uh, she's in Cry Baby. But for people my age, I think you probably best know her as the host of her own talk show which is just yeah, called Ricky yeah. Lake I think it was just, I think it was just called Ricky Lake which started in like the early 90s like a, about 5 years after this is when she became a talk show host and like very successful it ran for over a decade I think so mm-hmm. and then, and then she had another show a few years later but you know that that is what I guess most of us that are my age know Ricky Lake as I knew her as Ricky Lake the talk show host before I knew her as Ricky Lake from Hairspray because I had seen I had seen her on TV you know during daytime TV when I was homesick or whatever from school before I ever saw Hairspray. Yeah, I I definitely knew her as a talk show host. Talk show host first. Did you call her a talk show ho? I did. <laughs> talk show ho. Uh, that was a slip. I, I I do apologize. Sorry, Ricky. He didn't mean <laughs> yeah, it. Sorry, Ricky. I really look at that. Well, you got Ricky Lake and you got a uh, vitamin C. Just uh, making careers for themselves. It's That's right. Their yeah. jump start here, but totally becoming something else. Yeah. And, you know, the role of Tracy was, it was kind of a tough role to fill because uh, as Waters, he would later tell Film Journal, he said, if you don't like her, you won't like the movie, which is right because she is the the central character. She's in almost every scene. You know, Ricky's, Ricky's 
real life persona, according to the way that John, John Waters describes it, is that her real life persona was very much like Tracy. She was just perpetually cheery. She was never uptight about her weight. She was just like, this is just who I am. Very happy, having fun all the time, you know? Uh, oddly enough, though, Ricky Lake and Divine actually found themselves at odds at, at first, you know, the button heads a little bit. Maybe it's because Divine, this is hearsay, but this is kind of what John Waters thought might be the reason is that John, Divine might have felt a little bit of resentment. You know, this was after all the first time that Divine was in a supporting role in a Waters mm. movie, not in the starring role. But the ice was broken once Divine noticed that Ricky Lake wasn't used to wearing heels and began to give her lessons on how to walk in them. Oh. So that's kind of how they how they bonded. Uh, Divine also helped Ricky uh, keep mo- uh, motivated to keep on her weight because as the shoot went on, it was so rigorous that Lake started losing weight and she had to eat more to regain the weight needed for the role. So divine was happy to help and would she like come on to set to up to Lake and just say, come on, Ricky, let's go eat a pie or let's go eat a a pot roast, you know, like motivating her to eat more (laughs) of the other major roles in the film. We've got, uh, there's Michael St. Gerard as link. Uh, Link is kind of the love interest for Tracy. This was one of St. Gerard's first roles, but he would go on to work a a bit more up until the mid-90s, and he kind of disappears. But a little fun fact that I found when I was looking into him, he played Elvis Presley four different times, which if you look at him, you can see why. He looks like a young Elvis Presley. Uh, He was in, in 1989, he was in Great Balls of Fire, and then again in a movie called Heart of Dixie that same year. Then he was in a 13-episode TV series about Elvis's life in 1990, and then again, in 1993, he played Elvis in an episode of Quantum Leap. So hey. he just made a, a short career for about five years of just playing Elvis. The other roles include Clayton Prince as Seaweed Stubbs, Leslie Ann Powers as Penny Pingleton, uh, Joanna Har- Havrilla as Prudy Pingleton, and Canadian actor Sean Thompson as Corny Collins himself. I don't have any good stories about any of these people. They're not in a whole lot of other stuff. They just kind of pop up in hairspray and then sort of disappear, honestly. Yeah. Leslie and Powers literally like does I don't I don't think anything else really yeah uh, which is uh, weird because I think she's really great in the role I think she's, she's really, really good <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I was gonna really say great. the combo of her and Ricky Lake is like a they're both just very charming yeah in this movie very together mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah. yeah I was disappointing to find out I, I even saw I think I found like a Facebook page post from Ricky Lake from uh, this is a few years back where she was saying she always wondered what happened to Leslie and Powers like that she loved working with her but just never kept up with her yeah it's it's really strange maybe the acting life just wasn't for her but of the original dreamlanders only mink stole has a significant role in the film she plays corny's assistant tammy uh susan lowe has a very small role as an angry mom outside the principal's office uh and then you know when when ricky lake is waiting for the principal there towards the beginning of the movie and then uh mary vivian pierce has a, a, a one line on camera as a mother who scolds Seaweed and Penny when they're holding up the line for for preteen day, you know? Yeah, I think uh, Mink was, all, all I could find from her was that she was just happy to be the good guy. And this was the first time she didn't have to fuck up her hair for John Waters. Like, <laughs> they just wore, she just got to wear a wig. So she yeah. was pretty stoked about that. And I guess you could say that there were two new Dreamlanders who enter the fold in this film. You've got a guy named Alan J. Wendell. He plays Mr. Pinky, who owns the... What's it called? The uh, the hide the something hideaway, you know, where they uh, that sponsors sponsors Tracy, Uh, Mr. Pinky. He goes on to play in every John Waters film after this. uh, Alan J. Wendell does. And then Rosemary Noer, who plays a special ed teacher and Doug Roberts, who plays Patty Pingleton. uh, They are, I mean, very, you know, like they're in like one scene a piece in this, but they actually appear in every John Waters film after Crybaby. They're not in Crybaby for whatever reason, but everything after Crybaby, they pop up 
in a, like a small role. Nice. So, also, uh, John Waters, by the way, John Waters' yeah. first uh, credited acting role, I think. That's right. It's this fir- the first time that he has a little cameo. He plays the scientist who's trying to like hypnotize. Uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Penny. Penny. Uh, yeah, yeah. Hypnotize her out of wanting to date a black guy. <laughs> it's a very <laughs> weird role. It's very. It's a very funny role, though. Uh, yeah. and, and John Waters really hams it up. And that's kind of like what he does in acting roles after this. He pops up in cameos here and there, not just in his own movies. I mean, he's in Brad and Chucky, you know, <laughs> he he <laughs> pops up in the Hairspray remake as a flasher. Yeah, it's uh, just little funny roles. But uh, this was the first one. You're right. I don't think he was in Star Trek, though. But uh, if, if there's any movie that we've talked about on this series, because we've been batting zero on this yeah. whole series so far. We haven't yeah. had a single one. Five episodes. So on episode number six, do we have anybody that's connected to Star Trek in any way, Todd? Well, guys, I am so happy to report (laughs) six movies. I found one. One person. (laughs) One person. That's it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it was. And I, and. He's in the uh, he's in the uncredited section. Okay, wow! I appreciate yeah. your your diligence, Todd. Yeah, uh. <laughs> just clicking. No, this is the only movie. Okay, let's start again. Go to the next person. Yeah, uh, yeah. This was uh, Stephen Wozniak, who is an uncredited dancer. Uh, also appeared in Star Trek Enterprise season one, episode 25, two days and two nights. That was from 2002. Uh, that episode was directed by Michael Dorn, AKA Worf. Ah. So there's your one. That's it. I like to think, I like to think that Worf uh, cast him because he loved hairspray. Yeah. <laughs> you were in hairspray. Were, yeah. <laughs> That's a possibility. It's you never know. Uh, yeah, so that's everybody in Star Trek for six movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we. I'm glad you finally got to to do your little dance there, Todd. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> well, in addition to having a more experienced cast that he had on previous films, uh, with his two million dollar budget, Waters also was able to get a more experienced crew than he had had before. Although he did keep Dreamlanders Vince Perano and Van Smith in their key roles as production designer and costume designer, respectively. Uh, Of course, the downside to having more money means that you've got more people to answer to. And with Hairspray, Waters would find that he'd had to deal with producers in ways that he'd never had before. Although New Line claimed, you know, when they joined the project, they're like, like I said, Bob Shea was very excited. He's like, yeah, we're so excited to work with you again, John. We're going to be very hands-on with, uh, hands-off. We're going to be very hands-off with this. Uh, they, They said that they would be, but that didn't really end up being the case. Uh, New Line ended up sending a woman named Rachel Talali to Baltimore. So Talali had, oddly enough, she had been an unpaid production assistant on Polyester. That was her first, like, her first ever role in a movie. She was an unpaid PA on Polyester. Wow. Uh, she served in that same role a year later on Alone in the Dark, which is a, another New Line production, another movie that uh, Robert Mayer, the, the production manager for John Waters, would work on. And she would end up working her way up the ranks at New Line over the next couple of years. And by the time Hairspray came around, she was highly trusted by Bob Shea. And she was sent to Baltimore to oversee things for a few days. But the studio later decided that she should stay for a few weeks longer to protect their commitment. So eventually, so what was supposed to be just her, you know, approving the budget, checking things out, you know, being like the studio eyes, 
she essentially becomes the studio spy and the on-set producer. And eventually her, her role grew into an official producer on the film, and that is what she is credited as alongside Bob Shea. If you're watching the opening credits, it says produced by Robert Shea and Rachel Talali. So she essentially became New Line's enforcer on set, doing whatever it would take and spending however much it would take to turn Hairspray into a mainstream movie. Now, a little side note. Talali, she had dreams of one day being a director herself. And to her credit, she did eventually become one, making her directorial debut three years after Hairspray with the New Line produced Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, or as I like to call it, The Worst Freddy Movie. Uh, I just <laughs> I rewatched all of those last year, and that is that one is that one takes the cake as the worst Freddy movie in my opinion. Man, I tell you what, like part two gives it a run for its money. Part two is boring yeah. as hell to me. Part two, but part two is very like I, I learned to appreciate part two more after watching uh Sc- the Scream Queen documentary, uh, you know about the about the guy who plays the lead in that, and uh, I so I two would be my next to last though but two has a little bit more going for it than than the final nightmare uh but she anyway rachel Talley, you know after she did that she followed that up with another with the techno horror film ghost in the machine two years later i don't know if you remember that one i remember seeing it when i was younger but i do not remember anything about it so i guess that tells you how good it was uh and then uh then she did tank girl two years after that which is a movie that i i like that i can't claim as good but i do like it yeah, yeah, I was gonna say uh, definitely remember Tank Girl. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my my wife's a big fan of Tank Girl, so I, I've seen oh, it. Yeah. I've seen it often. Uh, and <laughs> now Rachel Talali is a well respected and very busy television director. Go look at her IMDb and look at how many episodes of television she she does regularly. Like wow. she is, uh, she is, she is a busy woman. So you know, she worked her way up. She wanted to be a director. This producer thing was just kind of like a step on that journey and then she became a director. So good for her, you know, but she did have to, she did have to like be an enforcer on set. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the stories that I've heard from her come from um, Robert Mayer's book because they butted heads a lot because he's the production manager. So he's the guy in charge of the budget. And then this producer comes in and just starts like adding things on and spending money. And he's like, well, where's that money coming from? (laughs) Because we have a $2 million budget. And you're just spending money left and right. So it's it comes from from his side, it comes across as a little frustrating, you know, mm. but that's because that was his side of the, the business. So Yeah. She was used to the Freddy money, like, you know, just from yeah. being from New Line. They're, they're, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, yeah. that first Freddy movie is still pretty low budget, but yeah. Maybe not as low budget as this. I think it's about four million or so. I would I would th- I think that's that sounds about right. Mm. Well, principal photography for Hairspray began on June 1st, 1987, uh, and I'm sure by this point our listeners won't be surprised to know that most of the film was shot in the greater Baltimore area, just like all of John Waters' movies. But it's like, what a switch up. (laughs) But Hairspray shoot actually began with a rare excursion to another location, which was Allentown, Pennsylvania. Uh, so, which is like a few hours away from Baltimore, but they, they shot there because they needed to film at a place called Dorney Park and Wildwater Kingdom, which was an amusement park that would stand in for Tilted Acres Amusement Park, which is the one owned by the Van Tussles in the film. And, uh, you know, that's the one where at the end of the movie, the, the race riot takes place, that, that uh, the, the yeah. amusement park there. Uh, Dorney was chosen because it had enough, like, old-fashioned rides that it could pass for an amusement park circa 1962, without them having to like build stuff. So they had to find a location that would look like an early sixties amusement park. This place fit the bill. And one of the reasons that this 
uh, location was chosen as the first place to be filmed was because that riot scene would require a lot of extras. It was a it was a big scene. It was the biggest scene in the movie. So that allowed the production to get the biggest scene in the movie out of the way immediately, like first week of filming, uh, and we're done with this big scene. Hmm. I don't filming- know if it's a good thing for Allentown that the movie shoot was just like, we need to start a race riot. Where's the best place to do that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, filming then moved from Allentown to the Baltimore area, utilizing locations like the Perry High School, uh, Perry Hall High School, excuse me, in the Baltimore suburb of Nottingham, and the Baltimore County Jail, which we've seen used in another John Waters movie. Remember it was used in, uh, in female trouble and here Uh that doubles as the Montrose reformatory for girls. And then the film's television station, WZZT was a local studio in Baltimore that was used for a lot of commercials, you know? Uh, so it was an, it was an actual like TV studio, uh, which made it perfect for the filming of the interiors of the Corny Collins show, because you know, it is, not just the stage itself, but the studio itself was used. Uh, and they, they, John Waters would actually later use that as a sound, sound stage in Cecil B. Demented as well. Have you guys seen that one, Cecil B. Demented with Stephen Dorff? I have seen that. That's a fun one. That's fun. It is fun. I actually really like that yeah. one. <laughs> Filming for Hairspray concluded in late July of 1987, and editing started soon after. Well, for the first time on one of his films, Waters wasn't 100% hands-on for editing. Uh, Rachel Talali told Waters that they, uh, quote, didn't have time for that, that the editor could edit the film, and then John could look at their assembly afterwards, Uh, which would have been just fine since Waters was set to work with Charles Ruggiero, who he had been working with since Female Trouble. But Talali and New Line decided they needed a Hollywood editor. I put that in in air quotes, which our listeners cannot see. Uh, (laughs) And then they flew in an editor named Janice Hampton, who had started a career as an assistant editor on Rocky, a movie, by the way, that John Waters hates. And he, you can find multiple quotes of John Waters talking about how much he hates Rocky. I don't know why, but he fucking hates that movie. (laughs) He he really does. I don't know. I love Rocky. So yeah, I was going to say. But I tried to find one of the exact quotes, but it was it was in my book. I just couldn't. Re- I couldn't reread the whole book to find it. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, but the point is, like this lady Janice Hampton, she had nearly a decade of experience by this time, and Rogero was allowed to stay as co-editor, but he didn't get along with Hampton or her assistant editor. They told him he had no business working on a movie of this scale. And Rogero, he kind of felt like he'd been betrayed by Waters. He's like, well, why are you bringing in these outside people who don't want me in the room, even though it wasn't really his decision? He did sign off on it, Uh, but he ended up quitting the film and the two never worked together again. Uh, Hampton, uh, she would actually end up editing Waters' next several films. So I guess that relationship ended up working out, even though it was uh, started as something studio mandated, but uh, it ended up being a, a, you know, a good collaborative relationship. And as always, of course, as we've said on, I think, every episode of this series so far, Waters insisted that the film come in at 90 minutes, which means that several sequences ended up on the cutting room floor, including one scene that they filmed. Uh, it was at the amusement park, set at Tilted Acres, that saw Motormouth Maybell in a bumper car running down a couple of folks who were uh, played by two of the original Buddy Dean cast members. They had given them a couple of uh, cameos, <laughs> and it was during like the... Kind of, kind of like leading up to the race, to the riot, but it, there was, you know, some tension and Motormouth Maybell's kind of trying to run them down in a, in a bumper car, uh, but that ended up on the cutting room floor. I think you could find it. I think it's on the Blu-ray maybe, or maybe I saw it on YouTube somewhere, but uh, it's out there. I mean, the footage exists. 
And Waters was really hoping, you know, while they're editing this film, he's really hoping that he's going to get a PG-13 rating so that more people could see it. Because, again, he's trying to make this mainstream as mainstream as possible. Uh, and at this point, you know, he needed a hit because his last couple movies weren't, you know, they weren't that successful. They, you know, Polyester had some modest success, but wasn't exactly a hit. Uh, and he needed a hit. And it had been several years since his last movie. It had been seven years since his last movie. And he was surprised. And he was somewhat horrified when the film was given a PG rating by the MPAA. He said, he's like, I'll never work again <laughs> after, he got a, after he got a PG rating. He's like, my career's over. Uh, John Waters has gone PG. But he did. He got a PG rating, which means that like after years of battling the censors over the content of his films, he had finally made a movie that literally everyone would be allowed to see. <laughs> uh, naturally this led to some of Waters older fans who accused him of selling out but Waters looked at the film as being even more rebellious than his earlier ones he would later say uh, subversive to me is the fact that Hairspray became one of the best selling videos for children's birthday parties and it starred a drag queen that's subversive yeah I remember seeing another quote about him with the PG rating but he said he th I thought I was going to kill myself uh, it seemed like the worst possible thing, but it turned out to be the best possible thing because it would have been more of a shock if I had made another R-rated movie. I've always said this is my most devious movie. We have drag queens, interracial dating. Even Florida hasn't bitched about it yet. <laughs> <laughs> so after a sneak peek screening in Los Angeles in January of 1988, Hairspray had its official premiere in Baltimore on February 16th of that year and then was released coast to coast on February 26th, making it the first time that one of Waters' films re received a uh, nationwide release without a gradual rollout. Remember, Polyester was rolled out over the course of several months. Mm. Uh, and Hairspray received excellent reviews from critics. In Crackpot, Waters wrote that his favorite review of the film was from a guy named David Edelstein, who uh, wrote in for Rolling Stone magazine. You may have heard of it. He called it, uh, quote, a family movie both the Bradys and the Mansons could adore. <laughs> so with that said, even though this is probably John Waters' most beloved movie, I would say, as far as like mass audiences, I would say this is probably his most beloved movie. I'm willing to bet that there are still a few people out there on the dark corners of the internet who don't like this movie. Yeah, I mean, it's actually tough in a lot of places to find like a good one star review for John Waters. And I'm surprised that the place where I found <laughs> the most was on Letterboxd. And there's a good number of people there who need a nap. <laughs> and that's legit on IMDb where I think uh, everybody's kind of bitchy about something like there were no like one star two star really? three star like everybody was kind of cool about hairspray but that's kind of cool yeah uh overall letterbox though you had uh people like uh burks and uh i don't even know what this name says half star <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't uh, matter he's not listening yep it's true and it's a recent review too june of this year hmm. says uh this <laughs> this movie is worse than teen wolf I see why they remade it. <laughs> Sometimes you can tell when a movie is going to be trash in the first five minutes, and I knew it was going to be trash. John Travolta's Edna was better. All of the Motormouth Maybell's lines rhymed. The integration was more about Tracy than the actual black characters. But when we got to our skin is white, but our souls are black, I said, but who wrote this shit? They need to be shot dead. 
out loud in real life. Disgusting. Shameful. Also, this movie truly ruined any fondness I'd had for 60s eras movies with about pop culture, unless it's about black people. <laughs> what a strange thing yeah. to say. <laughs> yeah. Also, I love this. This has happened a few times on the show, but I love when someone says like, this movie is worse than or better than this other movie that is in no way related <laughs> to the movie yeah. that they're reviewing. <laughs> Hairspray is worse than Teen Wolf. Like, why are you comparing those two things? <laughs> uh, this Michael movie's... J. Fox had big hair. That movie. <laughs> I, guess. <laughs> I guess the hair is the only uh, is the only thing that links those two movies together. Mm. Yeah, uh, this is my favorite review I found, and it's from Tom Pettigrew Gay. I like that Tom Pettigrew Gay. Okay, I see it now. Uh, half star. I am a racist. at least at least i understand why that person doesn't like the movie (laughs) uh here's another half star hairspray is drawn out terrible worthless stupid movie it doesn't know when to stop a joke stop a scene or stop being itself this is a truly bad movie hairspray fails at absolutely every level imaginable the performances are absolutely god-awful. Not a single actor seems cast well, and not a single actor delivers a lot of dialogue worth recognition. Which leads me to the script. The script for this movie is so terrible it should win an award. Hairspray has jokes that are so outlandishly over-the-top and in-your-face. This film doesn't know the first thing about subtlety. Even things like the technical aspects don't work. The editing is absolutely awful. Cinematography is bland. Costume design is cheap. And the production design. Hairspray is just simply a bad movie. It seems like the filmmakers didn't even care about what they were doing when they were making this movie. Nothing about this movie is good in the slightest. It's bland, boring, unfunny, tasteless, and most impressively, ridiculously terrible. Ridiculously terrible. Wow. Yeah, that and that's it. That's all I got. Really. That's all Those you got? That's reviews. all of them? Yeah, yeah that's yeah. all the bad reviews. Not very many of them, huh? <clears throat> Those were the most coherent bad reviews. <laughs> and even no. those weren't that coherent. There's a really good one that I found. Uh, I don't know if this is a... They didn't do a star rating, so I don't know if it's a uh, positive or negative review, but it's from a letterboxed uh, user named Shark Chomp Chomp. And his review just says, what if straight people were gay? <laughs> There is that. Well, guys, so let's we heard those people's opinion. Now let's uh let's talk about our own opinions on this cuz I I mean, I've seen this movie as much as any other John Waters movie, probably maybe more than this might be the one I've seen the most. But had you guys ever was this your first viewing either of you? Todd, yeah, it was it, it was yours? Yeah. Yeah, this is a first viewing for me and um I like it. It's fun. It's a uh, kind of John Waters movie Todd likes. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it took six episodes, but we did it. We got there. We did it. <laughs> uh, you know, the message is pretty straightforward. Um, you know, it's, it's also kind of a love letter to that era of clothing and hair and music and all that stuff. Um, but it's the message is, um, I don't know. I, I wonder, I wonder if, you know, had I seen this years and years ago, like how would I feel differently about it in light of all the things, you know, going on in the world today? Uh, Just because the message is the message takes center stage, I feel like. And uh, it's 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 really it makes me excited to visit 
the the live version that I think was on NBC not mm-hmm. too long ago, as well as the musical, you know, remake. Yeah, uh, from, both of uh, which are great. Oh, wait. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. It was I enjoyed it. Uh, I actually got uh, Kat Davis, my wife, to watch a yeah. Cinema Shock movie. Did with she me. enjoy it? She did. She Good. did. She had actually seen it before. So okay. this, yeah, this was not uh, her first go around. Gotcha. And, uh, but yeah, we had a, we had a fun night watching, uh, watching Hairspray and, uh, yeah, I, I, I'd watch it again. I, I don't know that it's one that I would seek out regularly, like a once a year viewing, but if somebody was sitting watching, Hey, it's Hairspray. Yeah, sure. Let's watch Hairspray. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was fun. It's so weird to think that John Waters made this movie after everything else that we've seen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. It's just, I don't know. I, I, I feel like I remember watching this like a long, long time ago, but it, right. I didn't remember anything about it. So this felt case. like a first time viewing. Uh, yeah. So at least yeah. felt like a first time viewing, but, uh, and I had seen, I've, I've seen the remake, but the, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what I expected, but this was like, so, just charming and sweet that I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't know what to do. I mean, but it feels like more like John Waters seems like as a person. It does. So. It re- That's a, that's a good way to put it. I, I agree. It's like, cause John Waters definitely like, he's a very pleasant person. You know, he, he, he doesn't seem like the kind of like guy that would make pink flamingos, you know, when you listen to him in interviews, at least in modern interviews. Now you watch him in some older interviews and yeah, he kind of does seem like that guy, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, he's very charming, and but still very quirky. I mean, cause this is still a very quirky movie, you know, it's, it's not, it's mainstream, but it still feels like John Waters is, he's not selling out. He's still making the movie that he wanted to make, you know, it still feels very kitschy in the way that John Waters movies feel kitschy and like a very, like a very specific way, a very way that, yeah. you know, yeah. when, when people are, uh, you know, I, a couple episodes ago, I brought up a movie called, uh, but I'm a teenager, but, but I'm a, but I'm a cheerleader with Natasha Leone. And that oh, movie, yeah. like the aesthetic of that movie is like what you think of as like a John Waters esque aesthetic. Uh, and this, this, you know, it's not it's gross or anything. It's just this very specific type of kitsch, which this movie has in spades i think i think i think that really started with polyester but then this is really like putting some polish on it a little bit but not too much not too much Mm -hmm. polish you know you you can never have too much polish on a john waters movie it's like a straightforward story but it has the weird stuff like i mean there is that like john waters character in the movie right coming in with the fucking spitty hypnosis thing Mm -hmm. and like and just that whole process (laughs) his whole storyline like that's yeah like a weird aspect of this and you still have divine as the mom yeah she's playing it pretty straightforward but it's still it's still divine right uh yeah and then there is like todd said there's the message part of it and i found i found a really cool quote from him about that uh uh that i wanted to mention and i guess this is as good a place as any but where people were talking about the message of that movie and getting it in there because i think in the last episode we mentioned he talked about getting to be subtle or sneak in a message in there and it is a movie with a message, but uh, this is a really interesting way he puts it because I, I, I kind of feel this way a lot of times too. They talk about uh, why does he think this still works? Because he, he was talking about how like Sonny Bono was in it and he's like, even conservatives love this movie and, and liberals and all this stuff. Like, well, why do you think that is? And he says, uh, quote, the reason this works is because I wasn't preaching. 
I wasn't making the other side feel stupid. I was using humor to get your attention. And I was making fun of liberals too. I always have. I make fun of the rules that liberals live by. All rules to me are interesting to break. That's the basis of humor. Mm. So Hairspray is a message movie that never once gets on a soapbox. So people never even realized it was a message movie. I just made a movie about a subject that I knew and it had an experience with, and I had tried to tell it in a humorous way that stayed off that soapbox. I think the soapbox just eventually makes people go the other way. Yeah, I, I love I love that quote. Uh, that's a, that's great. I mean, you're right. I mean, you know, when we talked about towards the beginning of this episode, I included all those details of the Real Buddy Dean show uh, for a reason, or a couple of reasons. For one, of course, this whole show is about the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films, and that is quite literally the story that inspired Hairspray. But most of us would have never even heard of the Buddy Dean show if John Waters and and had not made this movie, right? Mm. But what? Waters is doing with Hairspray obviously isn't a based on a true story tale of the Buddy Dean show, but it does take the history of those real life events and kind of uses it for its own purpose. He kind of, he rewrites history. Basically he's basically doing, he's rewriting history, not unlike what Tarantino did in, in Glorious Bastards or once a time, once upon a time in Hollywood, you know, on right. a smaller scale, but he's still rewriting what actually happened. Uh, he's giving us the happy ending that we all wish that that story had had, which, you know, which is fun. And in, in making this film though, this go, kind of goes back to your quote a little bit there, Gary, uh, John, John Waters, he has one goal in mind and that's to entertain his audience, you know, and one interview after another, when as I've been working on this series, John Waters says again and again that none of his films are political, but time and time again, we've seen that that isn't exactly the case. His films are not usually overtly political, but he's absolutely instilling them with his own politics, whether he means to or not. Uh, and I honestly have a feeling that he does mean to, and is just being kind of cheeky about it some of the time. Right. But Hairspray is definitely his most overtly political film. But it's also not a film that's like setting out to cure racism, you know, <laughs> like yeah. it's not it, John Waters. It never he wasn't making this movie thinking that I'm going to fix racism forever with my movie. Right. What he's doing is he's making a difficult part of American history accessible to as many people as possible. Mm. Because you see what we didn't talk about before is that the Buddy Dean shows segregation wasn't an exception to the rule. There were similar local dance shows like the Buddy Dean show all over the country, and they all had identical policies when it came to white people and black people dancing together. Even American Bandstand, when they were still just a, a regional show in Philadelphia, had that same rule. And that policy was they don't dance together. That was it, you know? So mm. what Hairspray is doing, I think, is it, it's encouraging its audience to take this fight to integrate the corny Colin show seriously. And it, it makes it like uh, it is an issue for the characters in the film. So it becomes an issue for the audience. Right. But it does mm -hmm. it in, it does it by using comedy and campy costumes and dance and song uh, all designed to celebrate and, and kind of satirize the early sixties. Uh, and like you said, Gary, it never, it does it without ever getting on a soapbox or being preachy. And I think that's why the movie still works, you know, 30, what, 35 years later. Uh, mm. It gets its point across without ever making anyone, namely white people, feel uncomfortable, right? Because they mm. don't feel like they're being preached to. I just always think a cool thing with art is that when it can be subtle about 
I don't know, sneaking something into your brain that, you know, like you weren't really expecting. And right. I know people mm -hmm. might not mm -hmm. think that works sometimes, but I feel like there's been experiences I've had where it's over time I became accustomed to something because I would see it pop up in art. Nothing, nobody had to get on a, I, I do feel like when you attack somebody, like changing somebody's foundation, like that's a big uprooting of everything that they stand for. So sometimes it could be very, uh, uh, I don't know if, what the word is I'm looking for, but it could, it could turn people away from like, it, it, you could, they get this like a, adverse reaction to that. But when you can like mm -hmm. slowly, like tell them a story that maybe later on they can start to think about it and start right. to, you know, really appreciate like, and, and maybe kind of reevaluate how they feel about a certain thing. I don't know. This, this movie is, I mean, I feel like we are hopefully far enough along that, you know, we're, I, obviously we see in the news, there are still people who would love segregation, I guess, but you know, the, uh, it, uh, you know, I, I just, I, I love the, the way this movie tells this story that you can also have a lot of fun with it and also be like, Jesus, this is so stupid at the same time. <laughs> right. Know, later on. Yeah. Think about the darker side of what mm. was going on here too. Right. And, and I don't think that, I mean, I, I'd hesitate to say that John Waters is being subtle with his, um, message here i mean it's pretty pretty clear what what his message is here but he's being he's making it like palatable it, and people. it fits naturally yeah. in the story I, right. I feel like some people feel the need to like like they're not relying on their story to get you to the place they want you to be so that they eventually feel like they've got to just like straight out say it to you mm -hmm. and uh john waters does it he, he's relied completely on this story as a whole to just be the message it needs to be. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it feels more natural. And he's, you know, he's not trying to change the world here either. He is still just trying to entertain his audience. Uh, and Hairspray is is very entertaining. It's a very fun movie. It's a, it's a blast, I think. Uh, there's a reason that it was a hit. And, but it's also like a piece, of, it's a piece of entertainment, but it's one that, you know, hopefully gives people something to talk about on the way out of the theater or whatever, oh, you know, absolutely. you know, with, yeah. without feeling like a message movie, you know, even though there is a message, it doesn't feel like a message movie. If that makes sense. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Cause I mean, like it's not until I kind of sat back and thought about it, it was just kind of like, Oh, the, you know, the irony of spending that much time on your hair to, to look a certain way. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the uh the evil that's in your heart the the grime that's in your heart takes center stage when you're just like no these people can't dance with these other people and, right. and, and yeah all of that it's just it's really it's really fascinating how how john did it with yeah, with, well, with this one movie. thing i appreciate too is that I don't know what one thing that really hits me every once in a while. And it did with this movie is that when you talk about those things and we don't have to do a whole podcast on racism, I guess, but it is just that when you talk about things like segregation, it's easy to think about those things. Like they were like a century ago or something right. like that, you know, and then you can watch hairspray and realize that this is John waters telling the story, by the way, John waters is still alive. This is in his right. lifetime. This is, you know, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. This is all my, still pretty recently. My parents were alive when this was happening. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. me too. Yeah. <laughs> I remember my, I, I remember seeing pictures of my mom 
with the big blonde beehive. Um, man, I grew up in Pentecostal churches. They were still wearing that shit in the nineties. <laughs> oh yeah. I remember those pictures you showed me of your mom, Todd, with like the uh the white hood too. That was uh, oh, no. <laughs> oh yikes. No, Pat Davis was a saint. <laughs> And, uh, and you told me it had the point on top because of the hair. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The hair was so <laughs> big. Yeah, like, just, yeah. they well, needed room for for the beehive. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Gary, speaking to what, or Todd, speaking to what you were saying, like this, this was a major, without getting too preachy about it, like this, obviously this was a major issue in, in the 60s. And John Waters isn't, the, the, the one thing I think that you can say about what he's doing here is that he's not like making light of it, even though he's making a comedy about it. Which right. is, which I think is kind of, you know, that that's kind of a fine line, you know, to, to walk, but he doesn't ever like the, the racism, the, the racists are never a joke in this, you right. know what I mean? If that makes sense. No. Uh, yeah. Cause I mean, looking at like stand up comedy where, you know, there's, there's jokes, there's raced, there's race based humor, mm -hmm. but it, you know, in my experience in watching um in watching a lot of it and trying my hand at crafting something close to it it's first of all it's incredibly difficult to do it's not just hey let's you know let's tell a joke but it's you know being able to comment you, you are commenting on this situation it's more of an observation of like look at how ridiculous this is yeah. i mean that's a lot of stand-up look at how ridiculous this particular aspect of society is or this particular aspect of government or you know whatever in this particular case yeah he's doing it with humor but it's not he's definitely not making light of it it's very much like pointing out the ridiculousness of these people who are again the idea of they themselves they they are polishing a turd they themselves are the turd they are they they are giving themselves these big huge hair uh you know hairdos and you know the the clothing you know the fashion of the day and the whole thing but they're just their soul is just rotten <laughs> well you know one thing that we've talked about throughout this whole series is how john waters is sort of he's always on the side of the outcast and the uh the the outsider the people who feel like an outsider and in the case of this movie in the early 1960s in baltimore the people who felt like outsiders were people who were not white you mm. know uh so mm -hmm. this is this is various you know in, in other films it's L lgbt people in this film it's it's black people or i mean even Tracy herself is an outsider to an extent because of her weight, you know, but John Waters is always on the side of the outsider and the people who mm. are the oppressed, you know, mm. uh, because, because Tracy, the thing about that, that I love about her character is that she is, she's an over, she's overweight. That's one of her character traits, but she never sees that as a bad thing. She's yeah. never down on herself. Her mom mentions it a couple of times, uh, but never like in a disparaging way, but like she looks, she sees her on TV and she's, oh, she looks as big as a house, but it's not really like she's ashamed of it because she herself is big. It's more like she's worried that people will pick on her about it. But her the mom only... is dealing with her own insecurities about right. that yeah, situation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the only people in the film who 
ever give a shit about that are the bad guys, the Von Tussles, Amber and her mom. Yeah. Those are the only people like Corny Collins doesn't care. Link doesn't care. Penny doesn't care. Tracy doesn't care. Like it doesn't matter to them that she's big. Uh, and I, I love that he portrayed her that way as someone who's just confident in her own skin regardless. And she's happy and she's dancing and Link, who is like the, the, like the stud in town is into her because of who she is. And her weight never is even brought up as an issue during that relationship. Like it would be in so many other movies, you know? Mm. And, mm-hmm. and I just, I, I love that. And part of the, the reason that her character works so well is because Ricky Lake is just pure joy on screen. She's just really great to watch and she's fun. Yeah. You know, yeah. she's, she's magnetic on screen in this. She is pitch perfect casting, pitch perfect casting all across the board here. My other favorite character, we've, we've mentioned him, but Jerry Stiller, I love Jerry Stiller's character in this, uh, not just because of Jerry Stiller's performance, which I love, but I love the way he's written because I think Tracy's father is like, He's a very tender, just precious person who's just very supportive. supportive. Dad, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, he's written that way in, in the, the remake as well. I mean, that's just the way that character is. But Jerry Stiller does portray him perfectly, as does Christopher Walken in the remake, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess now, guys, I guess it's time for our further viewing segment. Uh, I'm. This is a tough one. These John Waters ones are all tough. But uh, I'm going to let Todd... Start because I think Todd, I think you have something. I don't know if Gary has anything, <laughs> but, and I don't know if I have anything. But I know Todd has something, so I'm gonna let you start, Todd. What What do you have for a further viewing on this one? Yeah, this one I was kind of you know well you know off mic we we all discussed that you know this is I think this series probably more than any series we've done so far has been really tricky to find companion pieces to go mm-hmm. with these that that aren't. Um, that aren't super obvious of like, well, watch another John Waters movie, right. you know, something like that. So, uh, I, you know, as I was going through uh, some stuff and of course, you know, you know, uh, taking a look at the life of Jerry Stiller and all of that as well. Um, I, one movie did uh, jump out at me and I was just kind of like, okay, I can see, a, you know, some similar themes here. So uh, from 1995, Written by director Stephen Brill and Judd Apatow. The tagline is, they don't run the fastest, they don't jump the highest, but they sure are getting the last laugh. The feat uh, features Tim Blake Nelson, a.k.a. Buster Scruggs, uh, comedy director Paul Feig, and SNL's Kenan Thompson. Wait, Paul Feig is acting in it? He is acting in it. Wait, are those the top build names, or is there another star are, of this that, that you're not mentioning? <laughs> yeah, those are those are not the stars. Okay, because I'm those like, what featured, a... those are featured players. In okay, the movie. I don't have a yeah. clue what this is. I mean that that tagline sounds familiar, but I, I don't, I can't place it. It's heavyweights. Oh, heavyweights. Also starring Ben Stiller and Jerry Stiller yep. and and his mom uh, and and Mara. So, yeah, um, I, to be honest, it was, you know, the kids kind of, you know, hey, it's OK to be who you are yeah, yeah. <laughs> and no, we can fun. have some fun. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. That, that's I, I think this would make a good companion piece. And it uh, came out roughly uh, roughly 10 years later. So yeah, 95 kind of a nice uh, decade jump there. Yeah. You got See, anything, Gary? 
Yeah, I mean, I this probably sounds stupid, but I, I thought of it in two different ways. One was like uh, movies to encapsulate like a, a time period really well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think an easy answer there would be like Grease or uh, yeah. like something like, I, I think I even, uh, uh, Pretty in Pink or something like came to mind for some reason for me. Huh. But um, but then also I thought about it in ways to like, uh, outcast going to a competition or and and i and i thought of uh like pitch perfect i thought would be an interesting uh Mm. combination with this Uh, i also thought of magic mike at one point but then i was like i don't know if that works but it's kind of fun (laughs) (laughs) well this was a tough one for me and i had to think about i mean the obvious easy double feature is like let's just watch the hairspray remake i guess but yeah uh, that seems like a cheat so (laughs) I kind of thought, let's do a double feature of two movies that spawned successful musicals. Ooh. So, Hairspray, 1988, mm-hmm. the original version of Hairspray, and the original version of a movie that we have actually discussed the remake of, the original Little Shop of Horrors, the Roger Corman Little Shop of Horrors. Uh- so that was okay. the only place that my brain could go for it. So that's where that's where <laughs> I ended up going. Uh, it'd be a weird double feature, but they're both high camp. And, you know, I think it could work. Yeah, yeah I, think, fun. I think that would be fun. Yeah, yeah that'd be, that fun. makes perfect sense. So, sure. Yeah, and then you could do another problem. double feature of the musical versions. Double, yeah. Double, double, double feature. For sure. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> so financially... Hairspray was a mild success, grossed about $8.2 million domestically, uh, but as many other films, as we've discussed from around this same time period, when it hit home video is where it really became a smash hit. Uh, and mm-hmm. Hairspray was huge on video. It did pretty, I mean, $8.2 million on a $2 million budget, and that's just domestically. I couldn't find the international numbers, but that's not bad. you know. But then, yeah, on home video, it became like one of the highest, uh, most most rented movies of the year. Almost two decades after Pink Flamingos, John Waters and Divine finally had another bona fide success on their hands. But unfortunately, it was a success that Divine would not get to celebrate. So as we've discussed, Divine was working hard to get more roles outside of Waters' films, and with the help of his manager, Bernard Jay, his career as a character actor was on the cusp of taking off. Between Polyester and Hairspray, Divine had appeared in Alan Rudolph's Trouble in Mind, which stars, I think, Chris Christopherson. Uh, but he played in that he played a gay male gangster named Hilly Blue. Uh, The role had actually been written with Divine in mind, and although the film itself received mixed reviews, Divine was excited about the possibility of playing more male roles in the future, breaking away from the female roles that he'd been pigeonholed in. Well, after Hairspray, Divine was set to tape a guest appearance on the TV sitcom Married with Children as a character named Uncle Otto for the season two finale. And the plan was for Uncle Otto to become like a recurring character on the show. This was supposed to be his debut. Uh, on the season two finale and then he would become like a character that would pop up uh, every now and then on the show kind of like a like Jerry Stiller on Seinfeld you know like a regular occurrence well after spending the day at the studio for rehearsals Divine returned to the Regency Plaza Hotel in Los Angeles where he had dinner with friends before returning to his room and then shortly before midnight that night on March 7th 1988 just two weeks after Hairspray was released Divine died in his sleep of heart failure he was only 42 years old. 
Divine's body was flown back to Maryland for his funeral, where John Waters gave a speech and served as one of Divine's pallbearers. Hundreds of mourners showed up to show their respects, including celebrities like Whoopi Goldberg, who left a wreath on Divine's grave that read, See what happens when you get good reviews. That just makes me love Whoopi even more. <laughs> yeah. Uh, John Waters in one interview talked about, uh, you know, in a sadder tone, it, it was uh, after you've worked hard your whole life and you finally succeed, I think you deserve more than two weeks to the to enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But there was one really good interview and I think it was the New York times or it was USA today or something, but they asked him, the reporter did ask him, do you remember the last time you saw divine? And, uh, and this is what he said. And I thought this was really sweet. He said, uh, it was the Odeon restaurant in New York. It was the last table on the downtown wall on the right. And it was two days after his play had opened. He arrived in a limousine, God knows who paid for that. And we just had dinner. Just remembering all the things that had just happened. The hairspray had opened. We'd gotten all these great reviews. And we were just having a celebratory dinner with just the two of us. And I think we talked about what we wanted to work on together in the future. You know, it was just a happy, happy night. If you had to pick a last night, that was a great one. Oh, that's good. Wow. And Divine's legacy does live on. You know, we're still talking about him today, right? Decades later. He only appeared in eight films that were released during his lifetime. Uh, and we're still talking about him today. And of those eight films, five of them are John Waters movies, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but, but, and yet, for someone who seems like such a niche performer, he has become a legend. He changed movies forever. He changed the art of drag forever. He changed LGBT representation forever. And most importantly, everyone who knew him, everyone that you read interviews, of, that, that when they're talking about Divine, they all remember him as a kind, caring, and loving person. And although he wasn't the lead character in Hairspray, his role of Edna Turnblad is probably his most iconic. It's definitely his most widely seen. And it's one that lives on today, both on and off stage. Because you see, after the film's success, New Line begged Waters to write a sequel to the film, uh, giving him carte blanche, He, but he had no interest in that. Uh, he did toy with the idea of a Hairspray TV series for a bit. He even worked on a pilot script, but the project never really gained traction. Uh, However, Hairspray would find further and even bigger success in the early 2000s when it was turned into a stage musical and became a Broadway sensation, eventually spawning a film adaptation of the musical as well. But that's a story for another day and another episode. So while the story of the legendary partnership between John Waters and Divine may be over, the legacy of their collaboration lives on today. So we've decided that we can't properly tell the story of Hairspray and really the story of John Waters without telling the story of Hairspray, the other Hairspray, the musical. So that's exactly what we're going to do on our next episode. And what I'm considering kind of an epilogue, a coda to this series, uh, as we discuss the 2007 musical remake of Hairspray. One of the the things he said in one of these interviews too was, uh, he said, the best thing about Hairspray is it's inspired so many different things. There are like four different versions of it. You can't do a bad version. I've seen the musical done in schools where a skinny black girl is playing Tracy. Kids don't care when they finally do the re- 
Uh, I think this was right before the remake. Or no, no, I guess he was talking about it before I do remake because he says when they finally do another remake, they should cast Lizzo as Edna. Just switch <laughs> everything. Sex, weight, age, everything. I take pride in this, that the characters can get beyond your threshold of belief, even if you cast it in a completely different way. Tracy Turnblad speaks to anybody who's ever been an outside, outsider. And today, almost everybody thinks they are. I think Trump and Obama call themselves outsiders. So today I don't even want to be an outsider. I'm an insider. <laughs> I became an insider with hairspray. I snuck in. <laughs> that's great. What a great quote. I think that's a good quote to end this episode on. And then next week or next episode, I should say, we will conclude our series on John Waters and Divine. Uh, I hope you guys have enjoyed this series, though. Uh, this is hopefully not the last John Waters movie we will be discussing. If you guys enjoyed this series and you want us to continue to look at the later career of John Waters, please like, let us know. Uh, we want feedback. I, a lot of these directors, you know, we only do a handful of episodes on them because we don't want to talk about the same director for 20 weeks out of the year. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. So so we have to like split them up by, by kind of like eras of their career. So that's what we're doing with John Waters. And we we're kind of ending with him going mainstream. And the next week's going to be the epilogue where we kind of see where that mainstream success eventually went, uh, you know, with the, with the musical. But, you know, if you guys want us to do cry, baby, serial mom, Cecil be demented. If you guys want us to do that, Hit us up. Let us know. Give us some feedback. Uh, or if you want to see, hear us do, you know, another Cronenberg series or any of the other directors that we've only partially touched on, uh, mm. let us know who you want to want us to talk about. Because that's that's you know we we're here for you. You know. <laughs> uh, so our next episode is coming up uh, hopefully in a couple of weeks. Here, I know Gary just got done traveling. I'm about to do some traveling, so our recording schedule is all out of whack right now. But we will get that next episode to you. Uh, as soon as possible and if you are subscribed then you'll you know you'll get a little ping on your little smartphone when it comes out hey. we're doing this for you I, we're doing this on a tuesday night like, that's right my yep. wife hates me right now <laughs> <laughs> uh well let's conclude it so gary doesn't uh become a single man again uh where can you <laughs> fellas be found on the internet i am at this is gary horde all spelled out I remember what I used to say that <laughs> you did. rock and roll. Yeah. Rock and roll <laughs> I don't know why it just naturally came back to me. Uh, <laughs> anyway, that's on Instagram and Twitter. If you like wrestling, I hope this is I host. This is pro wrestling. Uh, it's at this is pro wrestling on YouTube and at TIPW show on the, the socials. I also work with the national wrestling Alliance and you can access their links in their bio on Instagram at NWA. And I'm working my way through the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for now on my show, Computer Resume Podcast, available now wherever you get your podcasts and on all the socials at Computer Resume. You can also find uh, our link tree there uh, with links to all of the things, including our Patreon, hint, hint. Uh, so please check us out. Uh, and I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and D&D Beyond, as long as they behave themselves. And you can find me at Justin underscore Bishop. That's on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. The show is at cinema underscore shop, under, the underscore shock, not shop. <laughs> the show is at cinema underscore shock on Instagram and Twitter. You can check out all of our episodes as well as links to our Discord and our merch, etc. at cinemashock.net. Like, rate, review, share us with all your friends any way that you know how. And until next time. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather.
and be excellent to each other. Johnny, it's the times. They're a changing. Something's blowing in the wind. Fetch me my key, would you, hun? <laughs> we gotta work on your Baltimore accent. As we discussed on our last episode, Edith Massey passed away, and that was, uh, pardon the expression, the final nail in the coffin for Pink Flamingos. Oh, fuck, I fucked it up. <laughs> 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 I said the wrong movie. <laughs>